If you turn in your Bible tonight to the book of Romans chapter 10, Romans chapter 10, as I said, we've been studying uh, the order of salutis, the, um, God, the application of God uh, as he works his salvation in the lives of sinners, and we've uh, noted that our salvation is rooted in eternity past, where God has uh, foreknows and loves and, deter- and uh, calls, elect, elects, and then calls people to, to faith. Uh, tonight, we're, um, we're, we're looking specifically at um, how does, what happens in the, in the life of the person uh, when, when God reaches an individual, what moves them, how do they move for at one moment from being an, an unbeliever, lost person, to the next moment being a saved person. Uh, P- Pastor Wayne talked last week about repentance. Tonight, we're going to look at the other side of the coin that we call conversion and look at faith, saving faith. So if you give your attention to Romans chapter 10, I'm going to begin actually in Romans verse 9, verse 30, uh, chapter 9, excuse me, chapter 9, verse 30. Paul is dealing with an issue here um, that is perplexing to him and to, and, and particularly to the Jewish Christians. Why is it that the Jews who were the people of God are rejecting Christ and Gentiles are coming to faith and Gentiles are, are, are coming to the church and being um, born again? And so Paul is wrestling with that. Let's look at, uh, begin at chapter 9, verse 30. This is God's word. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, right, uh, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. And then our text, the next two verses. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. God in heaven, we thank you for these magnificent words, and I pray, Lord, you'd give us a heart to, to receive them with gladness and joy and, and true saving faith. Lord, uh, we, we need the Holy Spirit tonight, both so that I might speak in truth and conviction and clarity. We need the Holy Spirit so that the congregation can hear 
Not the voice of a pastor, but the voice of God. And so we pray that the Spirit now would come and, and do what only He can do. So that, Lord, this word lives and breathes in our hearts as well as our mind. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The question for you tonight is a question that um, might be a little, seem a little personal, particularly if you are Dutch and Reformed. Um, are you saved? Do you have saving faith? And I'm not asking that rhetorically. It's not just a nice way to get a sermon started. You see, one of the most common mistakes that, that is made in the, in the church is that we just assume that that is true. I mean, look at you good people. You're here and you're nicely dressed and, uh, and it's a Sunday evening for Pete's sake and, um, and, and you have your family with you and we know each other and we can just so easily just assume, well, of course, we're, of course we're saved and we don't need to spend time uh, dealing with such basic, um, you know, baby step sorts of things. But... Um, but we need to deal with such basic baby step sorts of things. Uh, first of all, because this is, this is the fountain of joy for every Christian. And, and whenever the gospel is assumed and, and the message of God's saving work in Jesus Christ is just sort of assumed and taken for granted, you'll see that the joy and the vibrancy, the, the, um, the richness of, the, of that Christian experience dissipates. But we also need to be back to baby steps and basics because it is, it is just true that not everyone in this room is saved. Now, I don't say that because I have uh, some divine insight. I say it because um, we just, Jesus says there will be uh, tares among the wheat. And, and, and I hope we have some, some folks with us tonight who maybe this is the first time you've, you've heard the gospel. We want to be praying that that would be true, that folks would be, would be coming who've never heard the gospel before. Anyhow, so do you have saving faith? Um, one of the assumptions that the church makes is that if I have faith at all, it, it must be saving faith. If I, if I believe uh, what the Bible says in general, if I believe in Jesus, if I believe the Sunday school stories that I was taught, then um, I must have saving faith. Well, it's not true necessarily, is it? There, there, it's possible to have a faith that is not a saving faith. Uh, the people of Jesus' day, the Jews, good, sincere Religious people, they had a faith. They had a faith in the Bible, in what they found in their Old Testament. They had a faith in God. And yet Jesus, on his way to the cross, pauses to weep over Jerusalem, and he weeps because um, they were not saved. It was, they had rejected the central gospel truth. They had a faith. They did not have a saving faith. And my question is, well, what about, what about you? Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, um, famous British pastor during the years, uh, right around the, the uh, World War II, if that helps, just place him. Uh, he said that one of the surest marks of the moving of the Holy Spirit in a congregation is, is not uh, just the conversion of new believers that are, are coming in and, and being saved, but the conversion of long-standing members, uh, people who've been in the congregation or in the church all of their life and had a faith of sorts all of their life, but did not have a saving faith. And, and people who come under the conviction that they have not had a, a, a saving faith and by the grace of God come to that. We should pray that God would give us that grace. 
It's so critically important, isn't it? One of the things that we're uh, one the, that we'll be looking at tonight then is is how does this how does this happen and what um, what is saving faith what are the uh, what are the acts of saving faith what are the uh, what's the content of saving faith and so our three points are going to be first uh, the context uh, the content excuse me the content of saving faith and then the acts of saving faith and then the rewards of saving faith this would be good uh, just to underline in your bible maybe make yourself a few notes if you have an opportunity to witness to someone and share the gospel this would be a great text to go to if you have a few little notes in your bible you could easily share the gospel with them the 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 context here historically of the text paul is wrestling with this question how is it that good jewish people, the, uh, the, um, the, the people of God, religious, um, sincere people, how is it that they are being bypassed? The church is not being flooded with these people. It's being flooded with Gentiles. It's being flooded with um, sexually immoral, godless, idol-worshiping pagans. I remember when um, we, and this shows my age, I suppose, but but when I was a kid, the, the hippie movement, remember the Jesus movement, where you got hippies and druggies and roadies, um, people with hair that's way too long and lifestyles that uh, are not sanctioned by the Christian Reformed Church Synod that I grew up in. Um, and, and, and the people are, I just remember a, a deep uh, wrestling with, even conversations between my dad and, and, his, and his brothers. How, what do you do with these people who have such... Um, these testimonies of radical conversions and radically transformed lives in a way that, that people in the church were a little jealous. They, they, they saw love for Jesus Christ and a commitment to the word of God and, a, and a, an enthusiasm to, to tell people about Jesus and, and, and the good church people would sort of look at each other and say, well, why don't we have that? What's going on here? Now, that's just a, a little bit of the tension that, that Paul is, is experiencing. How come, the, how come these godless, immoral pagans are coming to love Jesus in such numbers and the good, moral Jewish people are not? And the, and the answer he comes to is because the good Jewish, moral people don't think they needed Jesus. The good Jewish moral people think that their ethnic background, their, their heritage as Abraham's children and their Jewish faith system and their uh, keeping the law as a good Jew is sufficient. So Paul says they have a zeal for God, but it's not, it's not according to knowledge. There's an ignorance there, and the ignorance specifically is how is a sinner made right with God? You see, the Gentiles have an advantage over the Jews in this. Because the gospel is a message of what God has done in Jesus Christ for sinners, for immoral, idol-worshiping people. And, and the Gentiles, could, they could recognize themselves. Well, that's us. You're talking about people in darkness, people in bondage, people in death. Well, that looks a lot like what our life is about. And so the gospel of the grace of God and a righteousness that, that isn't attained by what you do but given as a free gift, that made sense to them. And they welcomed it. They came to faith. Saving faith. And so that's what we'll be looking at tonight. The content of saving faith, the acts of saving faith, and the rewards of saving faith. First, the content, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, have you ever read that and thought to yourself, that seems like a really simplistic confession? I mean, that seems like 
bare bones minimum just get you under the wire sort of, uh, of a confession. I mean, Jesus is Lord. That's all you got to say. What about, and, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead? Uh, what about the virgin birth? Do you need to believe that? Don't you, don't you need to believe that? What about the miracles? What about the cross, for, for goodness sake? Don't you, shouldn't that be included? What about his ascension? Uh, don't those things matter? Well, of course they matter. And Paul, in, in, his, uh, in his letters, talks about all of those things as essential uh, to the gospel message. So Paul here is not trying to reduce the, uh, the, the gospel to its bare, bare, bare essentials. But what he's doing in these few words is he's, he's getting us uh, to all of the gospel in these, in, these, in these core statements and beliefs and confessions. And, and we'll see that. Notice, in this confession... If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, we're going to see who Jesus is, we're going to see uh, what he's accomplished, and then the evidence of these, of these things, all in this, uh, in this short confession, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. We're going to see who Jesus is, and what Jesus accomplished, and the evidence and proof of his victory. So the first, first then, of uh, who Jesus is. <clears throat> uh, to say that... Jesus is Lord is a statement that you and I have heard a thousand times. It doesn't stun us, doesn't surprise us. Uh, we believe that, we're used to that. For a first person, um, for a first century person, a man or a woman, particularly for a Jewish man or woman, to say that Jesus is Lord is a bombshell. Now, the pagan, the Gentiles, would, uh, they had lords all over the place, right? The, uh, Caesar was calling himself Lord. And so there were, uh, there were all sorts of demigods that, that would maybe take the title. But, but for Jewish people particularly, the idea that Jesus is Lord is, is truly a, a stunning statement. Because uh, their Bible, the Septuagint, which is just the Old Testament translated into the Greek. We have it in English. They had it in, translated in Greek. Uh, the word for Jehovah God is Lord. And so when their Bible says, Lord, they see Elohim, God, the only God, the one true God, the maker of heaven and earth, God as he really actually is alone God. So the, the staggering implications of this then is Jesus, Paul is saying, you need to, the, the saving faith confession is Jesus is Lord God. It's a, it's a bold, uncompromising confession that the, the man from Nazareth, the man whom they met with and talked with many of them, and they saw him, uh, is the living, one, true God maker of heaven and earth. That's a big statement. Don't pretend that that's an easy thing to believe if you, if you were uh, walking in uh, Jerusalem in those days. Now, again, we're, we're used to the idea. It doesn't shock us. But, but in Paul's day, it's a, it's a magnificent, stunning thing. To, to say that Jesus is Lord is to confess that the living God, maker of heaven and earth, has come to earth in human flesh. It means that the, the living God, maker of heaven and earth, ate with prostitutes. And befriended tax collectors. To say Jesus is Lord means that the living one true God, maker of heaven and earth, was in his flesh 
nailed to a tree and crucified as a criminal. So, you see, to say those things is, particularly as a Jewish person, it's either the most outrageously blasphemous thing you can say, or it's the most stunning truth you could imagine. It's, it's, everything is on, is on the line here. It's either outrageously immoral or incredibly glorious. And so to to confess that Jesus, the man from Nazareth, is the one true living God in human flesh, then you, you confess that all of his life, his virgin birth, his righteous life, his miracles, his atoning death, his glorious resurrection, and victorious ascension, all of it Jesus accomplished as the God man. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. God has come to earth to rescue sinners. That's that's the confession, what it means about who Jesus is. And the confession also addresses what he accomplished. Because to say that Jesus is Lord uh, means that uh, he has been given a title. And that title was given to him by God himself. Philippians chapter 2. That God gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow. And every tongue confess what? That Jesus Christ is Lord. Uh, When Peter is preaching the very first Christian sermon, he's telling the the, uh, people who gathered there in Jerusalem for the Passover uh, what's happened to Jesus and how he was crucified, but but God did not let his body see decay, but raise him from the dead. And and the clincher, the punchline of the sermon is, know then this, all you men of Israel, that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. He, when Jesus was on his way to the cross, when, when your leader stood before uh, Pontius Pilate and they said, let his blood be on us and on our children, uh, well, it is. It's on you. It's on your children. You are guilty. You put him to death. And now he lives reigns as Lord at the right hand of God. And what did the men, what did the people say? They were struck to the heart. And they cried out, what must we do to be saved? Jesus is Lord, you see, testifies to his accomplishment, his victory. It means that uh, he has conquered the forces of evil and he's conquered sin and death and hell. Um, that, that all these are defeated foes, that Jesus Christ has, has he's crushed the serpent's head as we so wonderfully uh, sing. And now that he actually is ascended, and it's, and it's not an idea, it's not just a nice a thought or title, but, but the, this world has a ruler, a king of kings, and a lord of lords, and his name is Jesus Christ. All authority and power belongs to him. And so this confession is a magnificently weighty confession. To say that Jesus is Lord. It's the most wonderful, wide-ranging, eternally significant thing the human mouth could say. As you testify to the truth about the person of Christ and the accomplishment of Christ as he gave up his life on that cross and and thereby uh, truly atones for sin and satisfies the law and truly uh, defeats sin and death and hell and the devil. And there's evidence for this faith. If you confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, there's, there's evidence that, that 
we need to believe. A faith is not a leap into the dark. Biblical faith isn't. You see, the resurrection from the dead, Christ's resurrection from the dead, proves the two things that were just confessed. It proves his person, and it proves his, the, the victory that he accomplished. The resurrection from the dead proves that everything he said about himself was really, really true. Jesus himself gave this evidence in John 2, verse 18. The Jews demanded of him, what sign will you give us? Show us some sign that, uh, to prove your authority to do all of this. And Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it again. And they're like, well, it took 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it in three days? But, John writes, the temple he had spoken of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said, and then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. The resurrection proves that he does have the authority to do all of these things. Jesus, if you remember, introduces himself in the book of Revelation. When John says, I was there on the island of Patmos, and he has this vision of this magnificent being, eyes like blazing fire, and he falls down, and, and, and Jesus speaks and introduces himself, Revelation 1.17, I am the living one, the living one. I died and am alive forevermore. You see, Jesus was not just raised like Lazarus was raised to die again. Jesus was raised having conquered death. And so he never ever will, will die again. Actually, actually destroying the curse that is over this world. And, so, and that's the second evidence, that, that his, his work was actually efficient. It was effective. Why is there death? Why do people die? Well, people die... Because they're sinful and God, God has placed a curse on this world and, and, and the soul that sins shall die. And physical death is God's continual reminder that this world is under the curse of God. That this world is, is under condemnation. That the law requires death for sinners. So you see, if, if one comes along who does not die, who actually defeats death, well, that, that has to mean something significant has happened concerning the condemnation, concerning the curse. And that, and that something is exactly what, what Paul was, will testify, that Jesus was delivered up on the cross for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. It's evidence, you see, that, that the sacrifice has been accepted, that the penalty has been paid, the law has been satisfied, God's uh, is God and man have been reconciled, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. R.A. Torrey, an evangelist about 100 years ago now, had said this, When Jesus died, he died as my representative, and I died in him. And when he rose, he rose as my representative, and I rose in him. I look at the cross of Christ and know that atonement has been made for my sin. And I look at that empty grave and the risen and ascended Lord. And I know the atonement has been accepted. You see, the fact that Jesus Christ is not in the grave, that the fact that he is physically at the right hand of God, having broken free of death's bondage, uh, that means that a way has been opened through the curse and through condemnation. That Jesus 
His death actually satisfied the law. And so Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, if you believe in your heart that Jesus actually accomplished the work of redemption, then you will be saved. Then you will be saved. Well, is that all? Yes, it is all. And yet Paul will, uh, wants us to know that the, 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 saving, the work of saving faith that God works in our heart, there's, there's an act to it. Uh, when, when God comes to someone and, and brings them to faith, there's, something that they, there's things that they do. And so Paul says in, in verse 10, notice the acts of saving faith. He says, with your, it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. So, so God moves a person to believe in their heart and to confess with their mouth. To, to, to believe with your, in your heart, it just means to believe with, with all of you. It's, it's not simply intellectual assent that Paul is talking about. If, if you say it about someone, well, he did that with all of his heart. You mean he did it with everything within him. He was completely committed to it. And, and the word here in the Greek for believe, it is, it's a very strong, pistello is a, is a strong word. It, the the um, lo and nita lexicon says, to, it, it means to believe to the extent of complete trust and reliance. To have confidence in. So he's not talking about just intellectual assent to certain truths about Jesus. If you believe in your heart, if you, if you have this firm conviction and confidence, and so the Westminster Confession, what is faith in Jesus Christ? It is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest on Jesus alone for salvation. It's not saying, yes, I agree with the catechism questions. Yes, I agree with the Sunday school stories. Saving faith is coming to Christ. To receive Christ. To rest in Christ. Have you done that? Have you, have you just gone to Christ? To receive Jesus and to rest in Jesus? That's what it means to believe in your heart. Calvin says, let us note that the seat of faith is not in the head, but in the heart. Since the word generally means a serious and sincere affection, I maintain faith, that faith is a firm and effectual confidence. It's not just a bare idea. So I love the Heidelberg that, that I believe not only the others, but also for me. Christ is a Savior. For my sin, he died. And so faith, you see, is the act then of the heart where we abandon all other hopes, all, the, all other confidence. We don't, we, don't, we don't pretend that we can take with us our, 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 our religious resume or our good intentions or our, or our spiritual heritage. We, all of that falls away and we realize all that we have to take with us before the throne of God is Jesus. And that's all we need. And so when saving faith, when God works that grace in someone's life, they believe with their heart, and they confess with their mouth. Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, it's a part that we often sort of just pass over, skip by. But you see, you know from Scripture that out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so if... 
in the heart there is a receiving Jesus and a resting in Jesus, then the mouth will speak of that truth. It can't, it can't help it. Paul would, Paul would have would not know what you were talking about if, if you talked about a closet Christian, a, a non-confessing Christian, someone who just kept their faith to themselves. He saw the church as a, as a confessing community. And, and a Christian participated in the confessing community by making the good confession. It's what we do as Christians. Now that needs to give us some pause just to feel the weight of that and, and the significance of that. Confessing our faith is not what we often think about as a part of normal Christianity. And, and, and friends, I, I realize we may not all be evangelists. The Bible says he gave some to be evangelists. Praise the Lord he did. But we are all witnesses in the sense that we, we, we can testify about what God has done in Jesus Christ. We, if we know the gospel story and believe the gospel story, then, then we've been caught up in the mission of the gospel. So I'm, I'm not suggesting you're not saved if you don't witness. It's an area that we struggle in. I know we do. It's an area that I, I desperately hope we grow in. As we pray, God, give us the grace. I just, I just think it would be helpful for us to recognize that, that a, a non-confessing faith is something less than, or it's, it's not bearing the, all the fruit it could bear, it should bear. There's an immaturity about it. And it now, I'll leave that at, at that for right now. There's an immaturity about it. That we should, we should say, Lord, don't you want to be a bold Christian? Don't, don't you want to be free just to talk about Jesus with people who desperately need to hear about him? And, and don't you want that to come not out of some burden of duty that's been laid on your back where you, you just, oh, you feel so guilty for not saying something, but wouldn't you rather it come from a heart that is so delighted with Jesus, so full of the goodness of God and the gospel, and here you see someone who needs the gospel, and you get to say, could I please, could I talk to you about Jesus, about my Lord and Savior? Isn't that how we would like to evangelize, where we actually just love people and we love sharing with them Jesus? We confess. We confess our faith. And we do that in many ways. We do it in public worship. We're confessing our faith tonight. We're gathering together to say um, that we need a Savior, and, and we believe that Jesus is the Savior that God has given to us, the Redeemer of God's elect. We're confessing that tonight. We confess it before the watching world. And we do that together in Christian fellowship and community. We confess Jesus together as we encourage each other in the faith. We confess Christ when we get on our knees and we pray before the Lord. We confess Christ in our homes as families when we, have, we open the word and we read and we pray and have devotions. Parents, may your children catch you confessing Christ all the time. As, as you discipline them in love and as you train them in truth, you're confessing Christ. He's all we have as our hope and reliance and, and, and strength. But we also can want to confess Christ before a lost world and, and in a lost world. We want to do it winsomely and graciously, but we want to do it with, with, with joy. And there's rewards, finally, that come to this, this confessing, believing faith. The rewards of saving faith 
Paul mentions them over and over again in these few verses. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with a heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with a mouth that you confess and are saved. Uh, verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Uh, we, in the text we read earlier in chapter 9, early 10, verse 1, my heart's desire is that they would be saved. Um, what, what's... Over and over and over again, Paul is mentioning saved, 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 saved. And it just struck me, we don't talk a lot about getting saved. I mean, when's the last time someone asked you, are you saved? Have you been saved? It sounds sort of fundamentalist. It sounds like what the people down in Mel Trotter do, uh, where they, you know, they sing the old-time gospel hymns and, and uh, pre preach for old-time gospel conversions, but sophisticated, smart Middle and upper class Americans don't get saved. They get, they get helped and, and healed maybe. Or, or they get affirmed. They get life skills. And, and good Dutch reformed people don't get saved. They get baptized and brought up. Well, the good Dutch reformed people need to be saved. They need to be saved. I'm not saying you have to know the moment. I'm just saying Jesus came to save sinners, to save them. Paul, you see, is not afraid of the term. Getting saved is what Jesus came to do. He came to save sinners from the wrath of God. He came to save sinners from the death that they justly deserved. He came to save sinners from darkness to save them from condemnation. He came to save them to righteousness and to light and to everlasting life. That's, that's what he came to do. And, and at the core of that is the, the wonderful truth of justification. And, and we're going to look into that, Lord willing, next. But, but Paul says it is with the mouth that you, you believe, or you, uh, you confess and are justified. It's with a heart that you believe and are justified. And, and that's, that's the core truth, you see. That's what it means to be saved. It means that, that apart from the work of the law, you have been pronounced innocent. I was just, uh, this, I've been reading through the book of Deuteronomy, and it struck me again this past week as I was in Deuteronomy chapter 6, and, and, and uh, Moses is giving the law to the people. Deuteronomy chapter 5, remember, there you have the Ten Commandments. And then in chapter 6, he tells the, peop the, the people to, that we need to do this law. The Lord commanded us, <coughs> verse 24, to do these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, and that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. It will be righteousness for us. And it's true. If you're careful to keep the law of God and do all the commandments that God has given to you, it will be righteousness for you. Isn't that good news? It's devastating news if you know you. And then you come to Romans chapter 10. And I was just reading, I just finished reading Deuteronomy chapter 6 and thinking about the weight of that, of that law, that responsibility to, to keep and do the commandments and recognize how many thousand ways that I fail to do that. And then you get to 10 verse 4. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Do you, do you sense how awesome that is? 
Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. For who? For those who believe, those who come and say, Lord, just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. That's it. End of the law for righteousness. Where you get Jesus and all of Christ and all of his righteousness freely given to you simply because you believe. And all of your efforts then, you see, to to, to be good and and all of the disappointment because you're not. We do want to be good. We want to honor God and we are disappointed when when we fail. And yet, friends, we need to hear the gospel. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, if you believe in your heart that all that the gospel says about Jesus Christ is absolutely true and it's, it's gloriously true, and if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead for sinners, for you, you will be saved. You will be saved. So for my question, my, my question to you tonight is, are you? And if you say, oh, yes, pastor, I am, isn't it the most glorious thing in all the world? Is there, is there anything you can think of that is, is more beautifully true? That you've been saved by the grace of God, you're saved, you're rescued freely, not because of anything in you, loved by God before the foundation of the world and given to Jesus Christ and carried in his arms and brought to that cross all of your sin on him, all atoned for by his blood. And when he died, you died. Your old self died with Jesus. And when he rose, your new self came to life in Christ. You're saved. And if you've never really come to Jesus in that way, for that truth, and that grace, and friend, you can, you can today. I don't care what your spiritual resume is. Whether you're one of the Jews who've been in the, right, the, among the people of God all of your life, or you're one of the godless, idolatrous pagans who's just wasted your days and years uh, living for self. I, it doesn't matter. The same Lord is Lord of all. And everyone who calls on the name of of the Lord will be saved. Have you called? Are you calling? Let's pray. Oh God in heaven, oh Father, these are such eternal, immense things. Father, we just confess it's absolutely possible for us to be in the church all of our life and not be saved. And what an what a awful tragedy it would be if we ignored so great a salvation. Father, I thank you that in the gospel you come and you disrobe us of all of our pretenses and, and self-righteousness. You expose us as sinners, justly condemned under the law of God. And then you invite us to come and be robed with righteousness. A righteous, not our own. Oh, Father, forgive us for a spiritual cynicism that allows us to pretend that we're beyond these things. And Father, I pray that this beautiful, perfect gospel would be the rock on which we stand. It would be the great joy of our life 
and that we would believe that Jesus is Lord. That God really has come to earth and that Christ really bore our sin and died on that cross to make atonement and, and, and he has been raised from the dead as victor and king and savior. Oh, Father, may we truly believe that and then take you at your word and know that as we believe that and confess that truth, oh, God, we are saved. We're saved. And Father, for those tonight who've never simply come to Jesus to make that confession before God, who've never come to Jesus confessing their sin, and taking him by faith, resting and receiving him. Oh God, I pray that they would do that tonight. And that the Holy Spirit would, would bear witness that the gospel is true for them. And Father, then make us a confessing church. Not just assenting to doctrines, but confessing the glory of Jesus Christ. The wonder of the gospel. Confessing in a lost, lost world where people are dying daily with, without Jesus. And, and Father, I pray that you would call us up into the mission that you have as a, a saving God in our day, in this place. So, Father, we, we, we pray that all these things we've talked about, all the things that we read in your word concerning the gospel and the wonder of our Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, oh, that they... These would be the things we live by and these would be the things we speak. These would be the things that we die in until we see him face to face. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.